Welcome to the podcast, How to Run and Grow Your Solo Patent Practice with Anant Kataria and Fez Wahid of Sagacious IP. This is a one-of-its-kind podcast focused on existing and aspiring solo or small patent practitioners, interviewing successful solo or small patent practitioners, and bringing to you proven, actionable insights to start, build, and grow your patent practice. Learn firsthand how to acquire, serve, and retain clients for long-term success. All this while effectively juggling the multiple roles that one has to play as a solo or small patent practitioner. If you run a solo or small patent practice or are planning to start one, whether you're currently in a mid-size or big law firm or coming fresh out of law school, this podcast series will help you learn from the successful ones who have faced and overcome the challenges you are dealing with. So let's get into the podcast with your hosts, Anant Kataria and Fez Wahid. Welcome to today's episode of Solo Patent Practitioner Podcast. Our guest for today is Nancy Delane, a patent attorney, general counsel, public speaker, and an author. She's from uh, Schenectady, New York. Uh, she's a patent attorney and an attorney, a public speaker, an author at Delane Law Office. It's a boutique law firm located in the virtual space with a physical presence in Schenectady, New York. And she's uh, devoted to helping you nurture your mind child. That's also a registered trademark and a tagline that they use. That's very nice. Uh, along with her role at Delane Law Office, she is the general counsel for a nonprofit organization called Seeds for Peace International. And mission for this nonprofit is to feed the world one garden at a time. So let's take this conversation forward with Nancy and learn from her experience of being a solo patent practitioner. Hi, Nancy. Welcome to our podcast. Hi, Anand. Thank you for having me. Great. Uh, so, Nancy, uh, it would be great if we start with uh, a quick introduction about your practice. Uh, it would be great if you could introduce that to us. Sure. Um, I am a solo practitioner, which means that I do everything from practice law to empty the trash baskets. And I practice uh, intellectual property law. Uh, but, uh, yes, I am admitted before the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. I also do trademarks and copyrights and trade secrets and just about anything IP related uh, and except litigate. I don't litigate. And I uh, also do a transactional business practice. Okay, perfect. And uh, Nancy, why did you choose to go solo or set up your own practice? I came late in life to the law. I graduated from law school on the weekend that my 25th college reunion was held, um, which means that I knew myself pretty well by that point. And I knew for a fact that I am, bar none, the world's worst employee. I'm terrible at being an employee. If I can do it for somebody else, I can do it for me. And that's what I wanted to do. So I, I set up my practice to, to uh, basically be able to run my own shop and actually talk with clients. Many, many uh, very young lawyers coming out of law school get stuck down in the basement with document review for years on end. I didn't want to do that. I didn't have the time to do that at that point. So I, I set up my own practice basically so that I could serve clients in the way that the clients need to be served and the way that I need to serve them. Well, that's excellent. That's that's really good. Uh, I'm sure the listeners will get inspiration from listening to what you just said, even though you started late, uh, as in. 20, oh, I, I I graduated from law school. I was I was forty. I was uh, forty seven the year I graduated from law school. That's excellent. That's very inspiring. So, uh, 
everyone when they start their own practice uh, at whatever stage in their career or in their life they are when they started they they face a lot of challenges and uh, without fail all the people that i've interviewed and even even i and my my business partner when we started our company we faced a lot of challenges so if you were to list the top 3 challenges you experienced when you started uh, what would they be Well the first one was the fact that nobody ever teaches a lawyer how to practice law. They teach you the law, but they don't tell you how to practice. Okay, so here I was starting out from law school with no law firm experience trying to practice law. Um so that was my first challenge was to learn how to practice law. Um the second challenge uh, everybody has a, a work life balance challenge and I was no different from that and I still am no different from that. um at the time my daughter was a pre-teenager and i was a single parent so it was uh it was kind of interesting uh getting a practice started while trying to parent a pre-teenage daughter and the third one uh was trying to find clients i was very new at the practice of law and you know when you're new everybody wants the older lawyers and when you're old mm-hmm. everybody wants the younger lawyers um, <laughs> but uh but uh you know get, getting uh the clientele that i could best serve would was a was a challenge that's quite interesting uh you know the the first point you mentioned that's bang on yes law school teaches you law but they don't teach you how to practice law and that's something you either learn from the school of hard knocks or or you join a law firm and see how it's run and then and then you get there so you probably had the first i had the school of hard knocks but i was really lucky <laughs> i was really really lucky because i'm a member of the new york state bar association and the new york mm-hmm. state bar association at that time they don't do this anymore and i could hit them over the head for this but uh at the time they had a general practice list serve and the general practice list serve was just a it was an email list serve and people went on it and asked and answered questions and i basically used that as my senior partner and there was only one time when somebody said how oh, you shouldn't be doing this and when that happened on the list serve every other member of the list serve came out and said oh yes you should be doing this and if you have any questions for me nancy feel free and oh by the way other person go away you know that that's just ungenerous of you so i felt very i i really felt very confident going in because i i had access that you know yeah i i wasn't a member of a law firm but i had access to people who had been practicing for 25 30 years so it was uh it was kind of the best of all possible worlds for me you know this is interesting i'm sure uh, this is a point that our uh, listeners would love you know hearing here but you said this is this is a list i mean yes yeah, sa- sadly the bar association at least in new york doesn't do this list serve anymore well they do a mutated form of it that's not nearly as effective these days what i would do is go on facebook and linkedin groups and and uh, mm-hmm. and ask those questions because you get the sa- you get the same sort of interaction got it got it but it's it's good to know that such an interaction was uh, was helpful when you started and even though you did not have like direct access to a law firm there were experienced people who were there to support and and your general uh, experience that people did support and more people were supportive than you know than the ones who were not supportive so that yeah, there was only big... one who was not supportive and 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 <laughs> she got she got batted very hard for not being supportive it was pretty funny to watch um okay this is this is good uh so my my next question is okay these were the challenges and and then how did you overcome those challenges 
Uh, one, we already have an answer to one. But if in general you would like to talk about the other two challenges, how you try to address those, that will be great for our listeners. Okay. Well, client acquisition, I managed to intellectual property is a niche practice. Okay. Not every lawyer does it. And when I go onto a general practice listserv and announce myself as an intellectual property lawyer, all of a sudden I have a source of referrals. So I got a lot of lawyer referrals, which was great. I managed the workload by basically I just plain did the work. Um, and I, I, I'm pretty good at knowing what I can take on and what I can't. Uh, mm-hmm. So I tried very hard to not take on things that, that I knew I couldn't do. I'm comfortable writing a patent. I'm not comfortable litigating a patent. So mm-hmm. I, I took on one litigation and discovered through the School of Hard Knocks that I am not a litigator. And uh, my reaction to that is I simply don't litigate anymore. I don't do it. Do I ever show up in front of a judge? Yeah, but they tend to be at the social hours for the uh, continuing legal ed programs. But in terms of litigating, that, that's really just not for me. And I, I have learned that and I abide by it. So probably the best way to overcome a challenge is to learn what you're good at and do that. Okay. You know, I can talk all day, but, uh, but I'm not a litigator and I won't do that. So in terms of managing a workload, I take on a workload where I'm sitting there, I'm writing, I'm researching, I'm, I'm uh, counseling clients. I'm doing, I'm doing all that stuff, but I'm not arguing with opposing counsel. So, which means that other lawyers and I can still be friends. This is interesting. So, so you said that the, in terms of getting clients, uh, being on that list was helpful because there were many non-IP lawyers. When they learned that you were an IP lawyer and IP practitioner, you got a source of referrals. I mean, uh, these people who were non-IP, they had customers who probably needed some IP support and they referred you to such customers. So that's that's great. And And then you said that in terms of, workload balancing one best thing to do is to focus on your strengths and even there there's enough work and then you don't get overloaded with work that you can't do or can't do as well or would not like to do that's correct that's correct and the more you can niche yourself the better off you are probably as i say i do patents and you know yeah i i the niche is a little bit blurred because i also do business law but you know, I, I do specific things within business law. You know, I, I don't do mergers and acquisitions for major corporations, for example. You know, yeah, I can buy and sell a business, but I tend to stick with what I know, um, which makes my clients happy, makes me happy, keeps my workload under control, and life is good. Great. And uh, as, uh, you know, solo patent practitioner, you, you as you mentioned, you have to do everything, right, from... Um, writing contracts, writing patent applications to emptying the, the waste basket. So uh, in that context, you know, you do have to wear many hats and juggle between many roles, even even in the core part of being a patent practitioner. So how do you do that? And did you build a support system uh, for yourself to, to help you there? And what did that look like? I just do it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you have to get up early in the morning to do it, just do it. And that's literally what I do. I, I don't, you know, I have, uh, I don't have paralegals. I don't have support staff. I, it, it's literally just me. And that is actually the way I like it. So I'm, I'm very happy being just me. But what I do, I did this in law school too. I have an Excel spreadsheet that breaks down my day by 15 minute increments. So I know what I'm going to be doing every 15 minutes of the day. 
Okay. And, you know, yeah, sometimes, sometimes things come up and, you know, in fact, more often than not, things come up, but mm -hmm. at least I have something that I can go back to and say, okay, I have to get this done by the end of the day. So basically I have a to-do list. That's how I do it. And I set my client's expectations to be something reasonable. For example, I had one client who said, I need this particular piece of work done by four days from now. I said, can't do it. We can do it by a month plus four days, which was the next deadline, but I can't do it by four days. I didn't even get it done by the month by plus four days. But what I did was I, you know, I, I compensated the client for that in other ways. But, you know, it was, it was just one of these things where you have to set expectations, you know, otherwise people expect you to be on their beck and call day and night. And that's just not realistic. You don't have a life if you're, if you're that way. I have one client right now who's blowing up my email box because, you know, this has to be done now. No, actually it doesn't. Okay. It really doesn't. I promise. And so I, I finally just sent her an email saying, you know, if you want an appointment with me, this is how you get it. Go and, uh, go and make your appointment and we will deal mm -hmm. with it at your appointment. And then she calls me and says, well, you're not available until the 18th of August. Okay. I'm not available until the 18th of August. I promise you the world will not end. <laughs> <laughs> okay this is this is good so so it's it's really good to know because i i see that there are many there are many people who start their practice and you know like even if this is uh, not something they experience uh in the sense that maybe even before experiencing a workload which is unmanageable in their head they try to uh, stop themselves from you know starting a practice just because they they kind of foresee that oh i will need a paralegal i will need this support i'll need that support and because they don't see that support along with them they that's a big deterrent for for them to even start but now yeah. as you suggested it's not a big challenge if you are disciplined if you uh, know what you're going to do in your day you have your time and you split right. it into and, it, and if, if, if you have such a if you have such practice that you actually do need a paralegal and there are those who do there are things called virtual paralegals and these mm -hmm. people are contractors. They're not mm -hmm. W-2 employees because they are working not only for you, but for many other law firms as well. And mm -hmm. there are people out there with tons of experience, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, and, and they can they can help enormously. And there are times when yes, I have used a virtual paralegal. You know, if, if I have a if I have a project that needs doing and a paralegal can do it, I will I'll call up the virtual paralegals and I will say, I have this project and it's built on a per project basis and life is good, you know, we uh, we go from there. So you, you don't have to hire somebody. Even when you need them, you don't have to hire them as employees. You can always contract it out. Perfect. I'm glad you touched on this point because my company we are essentially those non-employee support system that you can have at your beck and call on a per project basis. So I'm glad that you touched on that point. And uh, yeah, this is this is great. I'm sure people would appreciate this input as well. So and and the third point you mentioned was to manage uh, the expectations of your customers, and that's something which I 100% agree with you. And at the same time, I realize that this is something where many people face challenges where it's like the, the fear of losing business because you're not accepting a particular deadline or a particular requirement, which may be unreasonable. That leads to them not being comfortable with 
Well, what it, what it actually leads to is to them not being able to complete the project and the client walking away in a huff and lawsuits happen and, you know, just all kinds of nastiness. So I, I've always had a theory under promise and over deliver. <laughs> you know, if I tell the client, I can't get this done until date X and then I can do it. I can actually do it sooner and I get it done by date Y, which is before date X. Um, you know, that makes the client happy. Or if, as what happened with the client, uh, actually just recently, I, I had something come up in the middle of that project that I could not finish that project on time. So I contacted the client. I said, look, um, I can't get it done by the date that I told you would. But here's what's going to happen. The, 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 uh, the patent office is going to increase the charge for filing. And what I will do is I will take, I will absorb that increase in charge. I was fine with that. He didn't mind. You know, it, it was a matter of getting it done by the final deadline, which absolutely happened. And a matter of taking responsibility and controlling the client costs by, by saying, okay, you know, I don't want you to have to pay more than I said that you would have to pay. But, you know, it didn't hurt me to take a couple hundred bucks hit there. It's a cost of doing business as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, if you put your clients first, they tend to they tend to react well to that. Perfect. Perfect. So putting your clients first does not necessarily mean uh, whatever they're saying. You just pick that. I mean, that's right. <clears throat> In fact, it very rarely means do what your client says. It, it means educate your client and tell your client, you know, I understand your point, but here's the reason why it's not valid, for example, or I understand your point. Here's the reason why it can't happen that way. Um, you know, give the, give them something that they can understand. You know, if, if, it, if you are doing something that goes against what they're saying to you. Right. That that's great. And, uh, and, uh, then see if you don't mind sharing it, I'd like to, uh, I think our listeners would love to know this. Uh, is there any specific, technology or business area where you've grown your practice more or where you focus more or if it's organically moved into a particular direction or how do you how do you manage that uh, area the the technology of the business you mean yeah i mean in in patents you end up either you know specializing in a particular technology oh or oh, oh okay businesses. um i i will write just about any patent um mm-hmm. except in areas where i'm not competent to write a patent Okay. For example, if I were to re- if I were to attempt a chemical patent, I would not be competent to do that. I don't have the PhD in chemistry. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. If I were to write a pharmaceutical patent, I, again, I would not be competent to do that. I don't have a PhD in pharmacology, nor do I want to deal with the FDA all the t- all day long. Uh, you know. So so there are there are areas of my own background that that I tend to concentrate in. You know, I I I came to to patent practice out of being a tech writer in the software world for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so many of the patents that I write tend to be either mechanical patents, you know, simple Mm -hmm. machines that, you know, Mm -hmm. somebody came up with a clever idea um, Mm -hmm. or, or software based patents uh, simply Mm -hmm. because that's what I know. I don't advertise for, for simple machines or software-based patents. You know, if the, uh, the degree that got me in front of the patent office to begin with was a degree in biology. So, yeah, I speak some biology. It's been 40 years, but I, you know, I, I, I think I could probably understand the Krebs cycle still. But, you know, it tends to kind of just go the way it goes. And um, it, a lot of it depends on the marketing that you do for it. You know, I, the particular audiences that I tend to get in front of tend to be uh, 
my favorite example is David Packard before he became Packard of Hewlett and Packard. <laughs> okay, um, he was a, he was a garage inventor. He he, he tinkered in his garage. That's what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then he built this printer, and you know history happened. Um, mm-hmm. So I tend to want David Packard before he became HP, and those are the people I tend to want to get in front of. That's a good way of explaining who your potential clients are. I think I think that that's great. Uh, that's also something our listeners would find interesting. So you've you've told us about how you try to develop your business or get clients. You've told us about how you try to uh, manage the workload. It's essentially by scheduling yourself properly and taking help of virtual support system like virtual paralegals as and when you need. And uh, you've also talked about you know how to manage expectations of your customers while keeping their interests first. So that was a good insight. Any other message that you would like to give our audience uh, just to uh, share some more information? I think my big message is niche, niche, niche. If you're, if you are an attorney, niche away from your competitors, be very good at what you do. You know, just don't do what everybody else does. You know, if there are 10 million business lawyers out there, if you can mix business and IP, that, that that's kind of a unique niche. If you do one thing very well that other people don't do or other people don't want to do, you know, you heard me say, I don't want to deal with the FDA. I don't. But there mm-hmm. are people who can deal with them very effectively. Um, if you're one of those people, by all means, I will be more than happy to work with you because, hey, guess what? You can deal with the FDA and I'll, I'll deal with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. So, uh, you know, just niche, 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 niche. And don't be afraid to turn work down because even starting out, I know I've been there, done that. When you're starting out, it feels like you're never going to get a client. I know this. But they will come mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, just go meet people network with people, um, do Zoom meetings with people, get on podcasts like this one and let people know that you're out there and that and that you and that you would love to work with them. Great. Great. This is interesting. I like the message of being super niche and uh, and also the reassurance that, OK, you can have your own. Uh, so to say your own terms in the sense okay i'm working in this niche and even in that niche you can generate enough work by going out there and being in front of people in that niche this was uh, this was pretty interesting nancy having you uh, on this podcast now i'm sure uh, you know listening to this podcast our uh, audience might have certain questions uh, and if they do how can they contact you uh, they can send me an email at nbdelane at ipattorneyfirm.com. That's N is Nancy, B as in boy, Delane, like my last name, D-E-L-A-I-N, at I as an intellectual, P as in property, attorneyfirm.com. Or they can call me at, uh, in the United States, the U.S. code is one, and then the number is 518-371-4599. Perfect. Thank you, Nancy. It was pleasure talking to you and uh, sharing your story with our listeners. Thank you so much for being there. Thank you so much for having me, Anand. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the podcast, How to Run and Grow Your Solo Patent Practice with your hosts, Anant Kataria and Fez Wahid from Sagacious IP. If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate it and listen to more episodes in the series. For more information about supporting your practice with external resources, write to us at info at sagaciousresearch.com. Please do note that the contents of this podcast were intended for general informational purposes only. The views of the guests and hosts were their personal views and do not represent Sagacious IP. The facts of every legal matter are unique, and the content of this podcast should not be considered as offering legal advice for your specific legal situation. The preceding information may be considered attorney advertisement and does not establish an attorney-client relationship.